Good morning, everyone, and welcome to today's Medical Grand Rounds. We are delighted to have our Chair of Neurology, Jeff Cohen, be our speaker today. I'll just tell you that I'll be here to introduce him, and Jeff knows that I'll need to leave, but Kelly Kiefer will be here afterward to help direct the question and answers. Jeff was born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma. He went to Tulane, where he got his Bachelor of Arts. He went back to the University of Oklahoma to get his MD. And he also holds a master's in healthcare of organizational systems that he got in 1993 when he was at the University of Colorado, which he got from the University of Denver. In um, his residency in medicine first and then neurology was done at Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. He then went to do a fellowship in clinical neurology and in neuromuscular disease in uh, 1981 to 82. Uh, uh, which he did at the Mass General Hospital. And he's done a second fellowship in peripheral nerve disease at the Mayo Clinic, uh, which he did in 85 to 86. He had a short stint in Denver, and then he joined our faculty in the year 2000. He became a full professor here in the year 2004. He became the chair of the Department of Neurology in 2012, and he also had done several things within the section at the time of neurology and now department. He um, directs the DHMC ALS Center, and he's going to certainly talk to us today about ALS and Lou Gehrig's disease. He co-directs the adult MDA clinic. In 2003, he established the Clinical Neurophysiologic and uh, Fellowship Program and directed that and he is also very involved with the second year class in teaching the neurology uh, to, the, to SBM. He directs that course. There are many, many things I can tell you about him. He is uh, an established investigator. Uh, he has uh, won numerous teaching awards. In fact, he was inducted into the Geisel Academy of Master Educators last year. Written prolifically on numerous topics of his interest, and one of the major distinguishing recognitions that he's had is the Burton Sandock Visiting Professorship back at his training place at the Mayo Clinic, which was last year. The last thing I'll tell you about him is that he's also a humanist. He writes poetry. He paints art. Some of his work has been on the cover of Academic Medicine. He is a Renaissance man. He has an amazing sense of humor, and he's my friend. So will you, will you please welcome Jeff Cohen. So I tape recorded that, and I'm sending it to my mother. <laughs> and, and to Robin Birdwell, who is in my class at Northwest class in high school, who was always mean to me. And she's, <laughs> she's, uh, she's head of the breast program at Beth Israel, so it shows you. So um, I have no disclosures financially. Behavioral, I was suspended for two days for fighting at my high school. Uh, and it wasn't with Robin Birdwell, though I was, though I was considering it. Okay, so, so the talk. Um, basically, I'm going to start case-based, give a brief review of diagnosis and clinical aspects of ALS, discuss how it's a multi-system disorder, uh, respiratory insufficiency for the pulmonologists that are hopefully here, and then a possible etiology of ALS. And uh, a lot of this is the, the result of Elijah Stommel, who I'll give uh, total attribution for this. So anyway, um, you know, because art is kind of an important thing, I, I'm going to flash these things up. And instead of evaluating me, which I really don't want you to do, if you can name each of these pieces and the artists, we'll give you a free trip to Puerto Vallarta. So anyway, okay. So this is, you know, most people have these case-based things and they make up the case to make it seem good. This is really a true case that uh, I saw a couple of years ago. So as a neurologist, when I get a page from ortho at 4 p.m. on Friday, 
I wonder why didn't I leave earlier? But anyway, it was a 49-year-old high school shop teacher and golf coach, and he's complaining of difficulty with weakness in his right leg. He also feels that the grip on the clubs is not as strong. He has cramps in his arms and legs, and the history is over the last four or five months. Cramps are always a difficult thing to sort out. In medicine, you do that as well. I usually say if people have cramps in their calves, that's not really a big deal. But when you start getting cramps diffusely, particularly in proximal muscles, uh, it can be problematic. Abdominal and back, um, and certainly if the cramps are associated with fasciculations. But the interesting thing about fasciculations is, is most 99-plus percent of patients I see that come to me, and they're usually physicians, medical students, interns, residents, and attendings that think they're going to die. Uh, most of the time, the fasciculations are benign. When people note the fasciculations first, it's usually not something bad. But anyway, so the story is he golfed his entire life. In his youth, he worked as a caddy. He served as an infantry officer in the first Gulf War. He lives in rural New Hampshire, like a lot of people, on a lake near farmland. And his wife came with him because she was worried that he really wouldn't give the story. And this came out not in the orthopedic visit, but when I talked that um, he's been on his computer for hours in chat rooms. And that, she feels, is atypical for him because he really is an outdoors person, was a runner, all that. School administration has counseled him for behavioral issues with students, and what was going on was he was on Facebook, and he was carrying on conversations that verged on the inappropriate with some of his female students. So on examination, his mental status, he had slight slurring of speech, but the key thing was he was very impulsive. He couldn't stand still. I, I said to him, how are you? He'd start getting up, walking around, and um, fiddling with things in my office. He started rearranging, uh, you know, my diplomas or what, or pictures or whatever. <laughs> started fooling with stuff on my desk, and he was pulling Skittles out of his. I'm not making this up. Skittles out of his pocket and eating them, which is a little weird for a 49-year-old. On his cranial nerve exam, he had decreased rapid altering movements of his tongue, and he had some slight weakness of the tongue. A motor examination, without getting into all of this, the thing that I want you to appreciate are these first muscles, the ADM, FDI, APB, finger extensors, wrist extensors, and deltoid, are all different root and peripheral nerve distributions. So it can't be carpal tunnel syndrome, it can't be a cervical radiculopathy. These are multiple muscles across multiple roots. And then you have right lower extremity weakness. So again, one process that's structural, meaning, you know, radiculopathy or whatever, it's very, very hard to implicate that. Anterior tip, extensor digitorum brevis, EHL, and gastroc. And then there was atrophy of the FDI. And the FDI is this muscle right here between your thumb and your first finger. The one group of people that you see atrophy of the first dorsal interosseous, as we all look, uh, are bicyclists. Um, and I'm not talking about the average person that goes out, but you know, a friend of mine who was in the Olympics and pursued cycling because of the ulnar neuropathy you get. And my friend who's a cyclist always says that people will come up to him when they've heard he's in the Olympics and tell him how great they are as cyclists, and he always looks at their FDI. But anyway, <laughs> so um, fasciculations are noted in the right upper and light lower extremity diffusely, and that's the key, that the fasciculations are diffuse. His reflexes, and this is another pearl, when you have atrophy and weakness in a limb, but you have present and certainly active reflexes, that means it's an upper motor neuron sign. And he had a left upgoing toe, sorry, a right upgoing toe and left toe was neutral. And he had some distal vibratory loss. So on examination, you have multiple areas of weakness, both lower motor neuron probably because of the atrophy and pretty, you know, present weakness 
as well as upper motor neuron because of the upgoing toe and the relatively brisk reflexes. So this is an EMG. We do it. Um, we make money for our institution. But uh, in this case, we do it really to make the diagnosis. So what we're looking for is something like this, either a fibrillation or a positive sharp wave without getting too much in detail. Normally, muscles at rest are quiet. So if I'm relaxed and I put an EMG needle in my biceps, it's quiet. As I contract that muscle, you see more and more motor units. When you see this at rest, the person is you know, completely relaxed, a fibrillation or positive sharp waves, that means there's discontinuity between that nerve and that muscle, that their axon is affected. And when you see that diffusely, that suggests diffuse pathology of anterior horn cells or their axons. And this is just another picture. Fibrillations are very low amplitude. They're very short duration. And a fasciculation, the bottom tracing, is just basically a motor unit, you know, that's firing off. So, okay. So what does his EMG show? His nerve conduction studies are normal, which is generally the case in ALS. There's some fine points I could say about that, but not yet. And he had active denervation. That means um, fasciculate, that he had fibrillations and positive sharp waves. He had fasciculations and neuropathic motor units in the right upper and lower extremity, and there, the tongue was also weak. So again, diffuse involvement. So unfortunately, this person had ALS. Uh, 1938, Lou Gehrig's performance declined. As, as you all know, he was the iron horse of the Yankees. Doctors at the Mayo Clinic diagnosed him in 1939. He died in 41. And the interesting thing is when I was at the Mayo Clinic, you can pull up these old records. You know, they have, yeah. So I was talking to my mentor at that time. And I said, is it possible for me to, like, look at, you know, Luke Gehrig's? He said, sure. You know how big the note was? This big. <laughs> and I look at notes with people with carpal tunnel, and I'm scrolling and scrolling through radiology, lab tests, all that. So... You know, and then a couple of years ago, for some reason, I was sorting through stuff upstairs. I was trying to throw away. And I had a note from when I was an attending at Mount Sinai in 1982. And it was like this brilliant handwritten note. And I think about my notes now. But anyway. Um, <laughs> so ALS affects both the upper and lower motor neurons. And so you have weakness. Cramping fasciculations, that's lower motor neuron sign. You can have dysarthria, which is slurring of speech, dysphagia, difficulty eating, emotional layability. We call that pseudobulbar affect. And what that is is things that normally don't make you laugh or cry will make you laugh or cry. And I had a patient who was a PGA golfer and a really good guy, and every time I'd see him, I'd say, how are you? He would just couldn't stop laughing. So we think it's some sort of thing, just like hyperreflexia, <laughs> that, that our cortex is a huge inhibitory organ. It's very simply to think about it that way. So it tamps everything down. The diagnosis is clinical. There are biomarkers that people are working on, but it's clinical supplemented by the EMG. Median age is 55. I've had patients as young as 18, as old as 85 at diagnosis. There are familiar, sorry, there are forms of motor neuron disease, SMA, Wernig Hoffman that affects newborns, but that's a different story. The average life expectancy after I see the patient is usually about two to three years. They say 20% will survive greater than five years. There are patients that do survive long-term, but their clinical picture is atypical. So I just put this slide up because this is very indicative of kind of my patients. He, this is Lou Gehrig saying, the bad news is lateral sclerosis, in our language, chronic infantile paralysis. 
There's a 50-50 chance of keeping me as I am. I may need a cane in 10 to 15 years. Playing is out of the question. And after I usually, I never tell patients the first time when I see them they have this diagnosis because it's a very difficult situation, as you can well imagine. So usually it's on a follow-up appointment. But the interesting thing is after I tell them, and I'm usually pretty straightforward and probably it's true to break the enormity of the diagnosis. I probably do, I, I'm sure this is what happens. Dr. Cohen, what's the longest that you've had a patient survive with ALS? And I probably say, oh, 15 years, which is true. And I think, you know, it's just our natural tendency, hope springs eternal, that then that becomes part of, you know, their whole mindset about the disease. So. I'll get sometimes get calls from family members or physicians or nurses or you know referring physicians. What the hell did you say that for? And you know it's just it's a very interesting thing. So over time, certainly we try to set expe expectations appropriately. So a lot of famous people have had Jacob Javits. Um, I saw him as a patient when I was in New York years and years ago. David Niven. Mao Zedong, if, for those of us that are old, we remember in the newspaper they would have stories about how he swam the Yangtze River. So it was a classic thing of he was probably dying of ALS, but they were portraying him as very fit and strong. And for you jazz aficionados, Charlie Mingus. So 80% of the cases are between 40 and 70. A lot of these slides are going to be repetitious, but because there's a lot of residents here particularly the first year I want this to be teaching as well. It's about two per hundred thousand, five times higher than Huntington's disease, and about 6,000 cases are diagnosed every year. And there's no effective treatment. There may be a biomarker that people are working with, but there's really not one now. And the point being is, is that it's about the same, most neurological diseases, if you say, two to a hundred thousand, you're probably in the ballpark figure without bringing in headache and stroke and things like that. But there's fewer people that are alive at any time with ALS, say, than MS, just because there's no treatment and the short life expectancy. Whereas MS, we have a number of new therapeutic agents, better care, and patients stay alive a lot longer. So ALS is highly variable in terms of its early symptoms. Most cases are sporadic with less than 10% familial. But the reality of this slide is it probably is more common familial cases than were thought. And you know, in the United States, we have a very heterogeneous genetic population. If you look at countries like Iceland or Sweden, it's much less so. And some of the best studies are coming out of uh, Sweden. And a number of different genetic uh, markers are, are being discovered. And it probably is more common familial than we thought in the past. And about 20% are associated with a defined genetic mutation. And there's only one drug that's available, rhinosol. And it really only extends life for three months. People have tried to cut and recut those data, and really, quality of life and other indicators, there's really not that much of a clear benefit with it. So the spectrum of disease, there's many genetic forms, as we said. Bulbar basically means that there's weakness of chewing, swallowing, speech, emotional ability. I won't get into the nuances of supranuclear and nuclear because I'll lose you and I'm not going to do that. Spinal is just what it says. It's below the neck. So atrophy, weakness of the extremities, diaphragm. Um, sometimes it presents very strangely, like the paraspinal muscles will be weak and people will just be bent over. And when that happens, usually diaphragm intercostals are affected. And also, if you're bent over, it's hard to get uh, good breath. So they present with postural problems and uh, respiratory insufficiency. There's slow and fast forms. There's monomelic, which means one extremity. With and without dementia, particularly frontotemporal dementia, we'll talk about it because it's really interesting. And it's something that just over the 
probably last 10 years has really been sorted out well. And then there's an Indian form, Madras, which is young onset, and they have an auditory neuropathy. So ALS, bulbar dysfunction, that's the difficulty with chewing, swallowing, and speech. The one thing that you can do to test speech, which is really easy, is to have the person say, ga, ga, ga. And I always have my patients do that, and they stare at me, but that's one of the early difficulties that people will have with articulation. Uh, it's about 20 to 30%. FTD, frontotemporal dementia, is more frequent in this group, and we'll talk about it. Uh, it's a slow speech. Voice quality is reduced, and usually there's dysphagia. And when people have dysphagia, depending on if it's upper motor neuron, which we call supranuclear, sorry, they'll have trouble with liquids. They go down too fast, and they'll cough. If it's more lower motor neuron or nuclear, they'll have trouble with bread crust, peanuts, lettuce. So those are the foods we always ask about. And the tongue is weak, and you'll see atrophy, and the pseudobulbar affect we talked about. The pseudobulbar affect, if you do a jaw jerk, that's increased as well. And the pseudobulbar affect, some people find it really upsetting, others don't. And what they say is, is yes, I'm sad, but it's like I can't stop the crying. So... Uh, weakness specificity for ALS, yes, there's this pattern that is so repetitive. It's the person that says, I have trouble turning the key in the lock, and I have trouble lifting up shoulder. So it's the FDI, and it's the deltoid. In the lower extremity, it's a foot drop. And I never want to diss my colleagues, but I see a lot of patients that get multiple spine surgeries and in reality, later, we have to tell the patient that they have ALS. So anybody my age, in their 60s, probably in their 50s, if you do an MRI of their back, is going to have problems. And it's there. They're weak. Let's go after it. But um, a lot of times, these turn out to be ALS. There's jaw weakness. Sometimes people have clonus of their jaw, which can be very upsetting that their jaw just keeps contracting back and forth. The voice, it's nasal slurred speech, and sometimes they have this continuous emission of sound like, uh, uh, and the family is very worried that they're in pain or whatever, but it's just part of this uh, difficulty. So it's a progressive limb weakness and progressive bulbar weakness we talked about, and there's generalized tongue atrophy. You don't see tongue atrophy in most things. I mean... Camillo may see it, or Laura may see it, with radiation to the neck or, you know, cancers of the oral cavity. Rarely, very, very rarely, we see it sometimes in weird mononeuropathy multiplex or sometimes strokes, but it's very, very unusual to see tongue atrophy, and this is one of the diseases that has it. And kind of a differential... There's a disease called inclusion body myositis. If you ever come to rheumatology rounds with uh, neurology and rheumatology, we always discuss the possibility of this case, inclusion body myositis. The pearl is there's weakness of finger flexion, wrist flexion. Usually the quads are weak and there's foot drops. And CK is in the range of 600. People oftentimes get diagnosed with what statin myopathy with this. But inclusion body myositis, biopsy proven, there's no treatment, unfortunately. Structural lesions of the spinal cord or brainstem can do this, but the key with that is, is with spinal cord, you see predominantly upper motor neuron signs. You don't see lower motor neuron signs. Degenerative disorders, only neurologists would really love and care about these things, but hereditary spastic paraplegia, usually lower extremities, very brisk reflexes, spastic. PLS, primary lateral sclerosis, this is where people survive a long period of time. It's the upper motor neuron form of ALS. There's no lower motor neuron. PMA is the opposite. It's the pure lower motor neuron. MSA is Scheidregger syndrome. They have features of Parkinson's, eye movement problems, etc. Kennedy's is a, a rare, I've probably seen two cases in 35 years, a rare genetic disorder that affects males. 
also endocrine disturbances for the endo people over there. Um, HIV myelopathy, usually not a difficulty. Myelopathies give you sensory problems. Lyme disease, I can't tell you how many patients I have with ALS who go to a physician, they do Lyme testing, they're told they have chronic Lyme disease, they're given long-term antibiotics. I'm the villain because I didn't make this diagnosis, and they have ALS, and it's, it's very upsetting. And, you know, the problem, I have this very naive and childlike sense of good and evil, and so I will call these people and say, well, why did you do that? And the stock answer I always get is, well, there's no treatment for ALS, so we should try this treatment because it works. And I say to them, you just made a payment on your boat or your Mercedes or whatever. Myasthenia gravis, fatigable weakness, eye movement problems, ptosis, which you usually do not see in ALS. Uh, you can do a tensilon test, edrophonium. There are acetylcholine receptor antibodies you can draw. CIDP sometimes gets complicated in that. That's chronic, idiopathic or immune, uh, demyelinating polyradiculoneuropathy, CIDP. Elevated CSF protein, the nerve conductions are abnormal. The prognosis is much better. If you're worried about that, send them to us, please. And then MMN which is a disease that there's a lot of times difficulty in figuring it out. It's an autoimmune disease, antibodies to GM1, and they present with usually distal weakness of the hand. So it can be a, a difficult differential. Diagnostic testing, usually we don't end up doing muscle biopsy, but for inclusion body myositis, CK elevation, it can occur in ALS with the innervation, but it's usually not above like three to 400. Uh, Anti-GM1 antibody for multifocal motor neuropathy, lumbar puncture for CIDP, the protein is elevated, usually protein is normal in ALS, MRIs of the spinal cord to make sure the person doesn't have some sort of tumor or lesion, genetic testing we do when there's a good family history, but really people are now doing genetic testing really on a lot of patients, and acetylcholine receptor antibody testing for myasthenia. So this is a slide from Elijah. I'll give him attribution. So this is like my patient that I saw. So I, w I played golf in high school, and I was terrible. But, but the point being is, is that those of you that play golf still, you take a tee and you put it in your mouth. And what's the thing about golf courses? They're always green. They fertilize them. They put a lot of stuff on the grass. So golfers supposedly have a higher frequency of ALS, so one of the thoughts is what they're putting on the grass and sucking on the tea. So, so what have I learned over the past 35 years? When I said 35 years, I realize how freaking old I am. But anyway, uh, <laughs> so people say, people used to say there were no sensory changes. Well, there are, if you actually examine the patient. Intact cognition. I remember when I first started out at the Mount Sinai ALS clinic in 1979 or whatever, we would say, oh, this is, you know, as bad as this disease is, you won't be able to walk, you won't be able to talk, you won't be able to eat, but your cognition will still be intact. And that's not really true. Why did it take a long time for people to figure it out? Because how do we assess someone's cognition? We talk to them. Like, I know you're very smart because I've talked to you. I mean, you know, that's how we figure it out. So when people are dysarthric or anarthric, we tend not to, to get a very good conversation going or pushing them. And the family will always say, oh, yeah, he, he really understands, or yes, and they answer questions. And, you know, we don't want to push because this is such a hard thing. So we'll talk a little bit more about that. We always said eye movements are normal. I never believed this anyway, because when I would examine people, they would have psychotic eye movements. In other words, instead of smooth pursuit, it would be broken up, and it's true. Autonomic features, people have looked at this. They have sweating disturbances. They've done tag studies of uh, the heart looking at uh, sympathetic innervation. It's been abnormal. 
I'm not sure, but you know, on some level it's probably right. The personality traits. Most people with ALS, um, Jim Burnett will say this as well, they're really nice people. And you know, when I have a patient who's a jerk, which occurs, I always try to reassess, do they really have ALS? <laughs> people are really nice. Elijah often says this as well. I mean, they're very nice people and you feel very sorry for them. And I, we were at this international ALS meeting in Milan and uh, one of the um, experts in it, um, Dr. Hardiman, I, I raised my hand and I said, you know, these people are nice, blah, blah, blah. And she said, well, they're nice because they're having cognitive problems and they just appear to you to be very, you know, humble and helpful and, you know, they're not trying to attack you or be difficult because they have cognitive problems. So whatever, but they, but they, the majority of people do seem nice. Then another thing is, is DVT, and this is very important, the people as you would know in medicine, they're not walking, their limbs are swollen, and it's very important to be aware of that. And then the patient choices. Um, patients have really changed in their approach to this. Uh, I have a lot more patients that are on ventilators, even though I talk to them very frankly about you know, the implications and the responsibilities and the level of care. So, and part of it is because, as we know, they're more portable and all of that. But. So this is, you guys know that one. So ALS and multi-system disease. So it's more than just motor neurons. We used to say it's just motor neurons that are involved, the upper and lower. Frontotemporal dementia, about 22% of the patients. And the case that I presented to you is kind of the classic ALS case of frontotemporal dementia. The person who can't st st sit still, they're walking around, they're eating candy, um, they um, have this inappropriate behavior. I mean, the other case that I often talk about is there was a patient that we took care of years ago that was a real estate broker, and he had brought, his wife had brought me a picture of, you know, him with, all real estate brokers always have a picture of them with their wife and children in front of a fireplace. Usually there's a Christmas tree and a Labrador retriever <laughs> or a golden right there. And so his wife showed me this Christmas card of his real estate thing. When he came to us in clinic, he was unkempt. He looked disheveled. He was dressed like a hip-hop person. He had like these baggy pants down. I'm not making this up, a tank top. He had like his Nikes. And it was really weird. And his wife said his behavior is off. And I said, why is that? And she said, people are coming to our door knocking on it that he's met through chat rooms. I thought, oh my god. And that was the story. And he had been obsessed with health. And now he was eating McDonald's all the time. So sweets, junk food are part of it. And, they're, um, and people are disinhibited with this. And it's very upsetting, as you can imagine, to the family. And then there's a group of patients that have cognitive impairment, more like you know, classic Alzheimer's, and less like frontotemporal dementia, the behavioral form. So this is just a, a slide talking about the overlap between these cognitive impairment, FTD, motor neuron disease, and sometimes FTD will be the first presentation of people with ALS. Elijah and I have both had patients like that. So for the neurologist in here, you can see that the skull is pushed, but um, just pointing out that on MRI, it's fairly easy to appreciate the loss of brain substance in the frontal lobes. And just another picture of that, how marked it can be. Usually it's pretty easy to pick this up on MRI. So what are the behavioral uh, features? Increased uh, interest in sexual activity, usually it's bizarre, like patients that are on the internet, porn sites, at work, at school, uh, lack of judgment, swearing, violation of personal space. You know, my patients will start, as I said, start fooling with stuff on my desk. One patient pulled up my reflex hammer and was trying to check my reflexes. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
uh, lack of personal hygiene, et cetera, et cetera. So the two people that have done, I think, the most in this are, are Catherine and uh, Orla. Uh, they both looked at, Catherine was the person that really did a lot of the skills and initial work on FTD, and Orla is really expanding it to look at cognitive impairment. Um, and she's done a lot of work as well as in, in the genetics of it. She has a relatively stable population in, in Ireland that she can look at. So autonomic dysfunction, I think this is a little bit more questionable as someone who spent a lot of time doing autonomic things. But we do have patients that do complain of bowel and bladder problems um, that we see. So as they say in most articles, this needs to be further investigated. So the phenotypic variability, spinal onset, arms, legs, bulbar onset, we said chewing, swallowing, and speech. It can be purely upper motor neuron, like primary lateral sclerosis, where people have spasticity. Uh, there's a story, uh, the person, you may have read this in the Times years ago, uh, the person that headed up the ALS clinic at UCSF was actually diagnosed with ALS, and he has passed. But I remember seeing him at a conference, uh, American Academy of Neurology, and I said, oh, how are you doing? And he's, because he was walking with spasticity. And I thought, this is really weird. And he said, oh, my neurosurgeon is going to operate on me soon. I have a cervical myelopathy. And that's how he presented with just purely upper motor neuron signs, and it obviously wasn't that. Um, but then he developed lower motor neuron signs and more classic ALS. Progressive muscular atrophy of lower motor neuron. There's also a hemiplegic flail arm we see. I have a patient that I just saw yesterday, flail arm, that they have this weakness in, of both arms, and the legs are strong, chewing, swallowing speech, and then a flail leg syndrome. Sometimes it will be very, very slow if it's monomelic, meaning one extremity, and then suddenly pick up. Genes that are associated, the, the two things that I'm just going to point out quickly on this slide is SOD1 mutation was the first mutation that was noted. This is what, uh, you know, the experimental animal for SOD1, both mouse, rat. Jim uses this in his studies. The problem is it's really not like human ALS. I mean, we, uh, Raleutech or Rizalt was developed as a result of the SOD1 mutation, and it may be great in helping mice rats, but it really doesn't do a lot for humans. The most common gene is the C9-ORF, and the TDP43 is associated with frontotemporal dementia. And as you can see from the slide, there are other genes that are being identified, FUS, BCP, et cetera. Okay. So basically, we talked briefly about Raleazol. The problem is it's expensive. People get GI side effects. SOD1 mutation, yes, we use it. If there's a family history and we have a positive genetic test before clinical presentation, yes, we will use it. For other patients, the therapy may be too late, too. So that may be, and people are saying, well, you know, by the time it started, already 70% of motor neurons are gone. Because people have looked at this whole concept. When someone clinically presents with ALS, how far is the disease advanced? And like a lot of neurodegenerative disorders, it's probably 70%. So maybe by the time we're using it, there's really no hope of salvaging uh, the motor neurons. Symptomatic therapies, cramps can be very bad. Quinine, we all know the FDA got rid of. I usually tell patients to drink tonic water. It has quinine in it. Uh, you can get quinine from Canadian pharmacies as well. The first medication is better known to you as Keppra, plus minus if it does anything. Spasticity, we use baclofen, cisanidine. Patients that have pure spasticity like PLS, if we try to put a baclofen pump in, it's usually a disaster. It just makes them too weak. Excessive uh, salivation, amitriptyline, anticholinergic, scopolamine patch. We used to, myself included, do Botox injections in the uh, salivary glands. Usually it doesn't work. Best thing is atropine drops, as long as they don't take too much. 
emotional liability, amitriptyline, new dextas, a medication that cost a really lot of money. Um, and I'm not really that convinced it does much more than uh, amitriptyline. Um, and then it goes through the others. The key that we've really found that's helpful is, um, you know, BiPAP, and we'll, we'll talk about that a little more. So it's important, the two things I always ask patients is, how much, are, how much weight have you lost? Because that's key, because if you start really losing weight, which you are going to do because of loss of muscle mass, but if it's really accelerated, patients will get even weaker. So when to time the peg is important. The interesting thing about a peg is a lot of my patients will say, no, 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 I never want one. But I think I've only had one patient that in reality has refused it. So we have an ALS clinic. The nice thing is you really need support in the clinic. Personally, I need support because this is really difficult. I mean, you know, it's in oncology, not, you know, as much as oncology at times can be depressing. Sorry, Camillo and Laura. But, uh, you know, there's always a 10% chance, a 5% chance. We can try another, you know, protocol. ALS, there's no treatment. And, you know, I can't escape that fact that when I make that diagnosis, the patient's going to die. Nothing I can do. And if I'm wrong, which I've learned I can certainly be wrong, uh, I'm happy. But, uh, you know, there's no treatment. So we have a lot of people in our clinic, OT, PT, speech, um, dietetics, sleep medicine, pulmonary comes, palliative care, which is very important. So, so I'm just going to briefly skim through the uh, respiratory issues. The key is to recognize it early, and it can occur in isolation, as I said. When it occurs in isolation, I always, for a time, I was getting sent patients that were having respiratory problems, and did they have ALS? And I can't, I think one time what happened was one of the patients had ALS, so everybody freaked out, and so they kept sending me patients. But it's extraordinarily rare that people will get a bent over posture with the respiratory problems. And when we notice it, the respiratory insufficiency is obviously at night during sleep. And it's the classic uh, symptoms for OSA that people will say, I have morning headaches, I didn't feel rested with sleep, I'll have frequent awakenings. And a thing that I always ask is, do you remember your dreams? Because people will tend to keep waking up and they'll remember their dreams. Um, it can be diaphragmatic weakness, and as you know, supine position is worse. But the problem with ALS is they lose their accessory muscles besides their diaphragm. So intercostals, abdominal muscles, and then the paraspinals, so you're bent over. So it's, it's really like most of the motor weakness in ALS, it's really a curse type of thing. And you can always ask the patients to cough, and they get <laughs> weak cough. Bedside test you can do is you have a patient just take a deep breath and see how many numbers they can do on the breath. One, two, three, four, five, six, and they should be able to get up normally to 20. And so they ask people, this is a study out of neurology, symptoms, and the thing, believe it or not, that was the most specific, though I find it hard to believe, was orthopnea as far as respiratory problems. And the nocturnal breathing is the, the first and major problem. And we send people early for sleep studies. Pulmonary function tests are good, but can anybody shout out why they would be not so good in patients with ALS? Because you have to get, what, a good seal? And people have facial weakness, vulvar weakness. So a lot of times we're not able to really count on the PFTs. And supine PFTs may be superior. We just don't do that. And the real thing that's helpful is PSG, which is, you know, the sleep study. 
And the other thing that's helpful for us too is, and the people that do sleep medicine or pulmonary would know as well, is a lot of these patients sometimes go into really weird and bad cardiac arrhythmias during, night, during the night if they're hypoxemic. And this is just a picture of what we're monitoring is EEG, so we can see what level sleep someone is. We're looking at diaphragmatic movement, mouth pressures. There's usually a microphone to hear snoring or apneas. Um, and it's usually very helpful for us. And this is also a way that we can get our patients on BiPAP relatively soon. It greatly improves their quality of life. I mean, think about it. You know, if you sleep badly, most of you over 60 know what I'm talking about. But if you sleep poorly, the next day you're dragging. But if you already have muscle weakness and other things, the decrement in your level of functioning really is a lot. And just the point of, of it's important to start it, it's also important to, again, to time the peg so there's not really severe respiratory insufficiency. So this is Elijah Stalwell. As we all know, he's a patriot uh, with the American flag there. But, uh, <laughs> but the, what I wanted to talk about is his work. I really had some influence in this because years and years ago, uh, I had a, a, what was she? She was a family practice resident, Melanie Lawrence who was interested in the concept that there was a cluster of ALS near where she had lived. And there was a history of a plane crash there and horrible uh, spills and all of that. So she started on this. And I think I had talked to Elijah about this. And Elijah's background, his father was a very famous um, person who was involved in ocean currents and temperature regulation, and he grew up on Cape Cod, so water is very important to him. So his idea kind of morphed from Melanie's to, to look at these clusters of ALS and to look at where they are. So the first one that Melanie did was in Plainfield. But Elijah's one, and I think it was two because we had a few patients um, in the Enfield area. Elijah's focus was really in Enfield and um, Lake Mascoma. And I feel bad for Sarah Fink, who was on the sailing team, who was on Lake Mascoma for a lot during her undergraduate years, because there's a cluster of ALS. So what Elijah did was he looked at all of our records here at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. He also got the muscular dystrophy association involved and, and the ALS association later involved, and he mapped this stuff out. And there's all sorts of problems with clusters. Any of you that um, are epi people know that. Um, you know, whenever you talk about clusters, real epidemiologists will roll their eyes and they'll just go, oh, it's just because this year there's increased frequency, whatever. And you know, I think the first time Elijah couldn't go to the American Academy of Neurology meeting for a poster, and I went or something, and I just got totally dissed. People would come up to me and, you know, what are you doing? That's stupid, blah, blah, blah. So Elijah <laughs> then looked at it with zip codes and population and was able to look at areas where it clustered, and it's the dark blue. And again, looking at a larger segment and what he found was it seems to occur at a higher frequency, more commonly near water, and particularly lakes. And was there a relationship with lake culture? And you, you probably read the story, I don't know, what was it, five, six years ago about some tuck professor that was extraordinarily upset because Elijah said that Lake Mascoma, there was a cluster, and this guy was worried, and it started this whole thing. But anyway... So Elijah needed to have a reason for this to why does it occur. So there's a guy, Paul Cox. And if you read The New Yorker, there was a long story about him. And he looked at Guam and why there, was, there were all of these cases of ALS. And his hypothesis was that these flying foxes eat these... Uh, eat these um, cycad seeds and that there is this biomagnification of BMAA that's in the cycad. 
things. And there, it's produced by cyanobacteria. And like most things, as it goes up the food chain, it gets biomagnified. And the Chamorro people ate these flying foxes that were a delicacy. They don't exist anymore. Now, Elijah has some great photos of the flying foxes. So that was Paul Cox's hypothesis. So obviously the people that live near Lake Mascoma are not eating flying foxes. So how are they getting the BMAA? And it's thought to be with the blue-green algae. And I remember as a kid this stuff being on a lake and my sister and I throwing it at each other. And I'm thinking, what the hell were we doing? But anyway. <laughs> Uh, that this blue-green algae produces natural toxins. And just some pictures of it. And there's really, there's no federal guidelines, but if you look in the paper now, they actually talk about blooms and which lakes and all of that. And the other point being is we used to live in a very rural environment. Now, even in Willen Pond, it's on the verge of looking like someplace in New Jersey. And what it is is fertilizers, other pollutants, get in the water and help accelerate the growth of the blue-green algae. It's that green scum stuff. So these are the toxins of the blue-green algae, cyanobacteria. BMAA is the one that they're focused on, but there are others that can cause illness and problems. Okay, And this is just a New England Journal article from a while ago, 1998, about liver failure and death due to another toxin, not BMAA. So, so Elijah's thoughts were that cyanobacteria toxins BMAA, that people can have direct contact with them, like my sister and I throwing stuff, that it's very windy on Lake Mascoma, that's why they sail there, so the stuff becomes aer aerosolized, it gets in the air and you breathe it. Ingestion, you're fishing in Lake Mascoma because you have a house there and you're eating the fish. And people that live by lakes, what, what do they always say? Oh, the water is so good, or it's great to shower with this. So there's a lot of exposure that way. And there's accumulation in human disease. Well, it's a great hypothesis, does it really does it really make sense? Is it true? So what he did was he went out to lakes. He basically had medical students because, and undergraduates because we know they're expendable. And <laughs> put, them, put them in little boats. And they skimmed the surface of blue-green algae and all that. And quite frankly, the initial results were, were disappointing because he felt that the timing was off or they weren't deep enough or whatever. Um, initially, I don't think they wore masks. Now they wear masks and goggles and everything because they are expendable. And uh, <laughs> the information in those data had gotten better. And probably it getting into the air, the aerosol is something that, that it's important. And they're actually trying to catch it that way as well. So you can see these are some of the pictures. And no one has masks on at least circa the first group. And um, again, because of the wind, like at Lake Mascoma, and whitecaps, bubbles burst, and the toxins are in air. And, you know, a couple of his patients and my patients also live close to dams. So that's one of the ideas. And then the drinking water. So that's another area that's being looked at. And uh, this is a map of uh, the cyanobacteria levels in Lake Mascoma. And Elijah's collaborating with. Um, Really, I forget the term. There's a specific term if you just study lakes. But they're also looking at satellite pictures. And they're able to see from satellite pictures where those blue-green algae blooms are. And so there's the idea of biomagnification, eating the fish, drinking the water, showering, et cetera, et cetera. And what they're doing now is looking at brain tissue with Wally Bradley at Florida and also uh, looking at other biomarkers. So it's a very exciting thought. And like most things in life, it's probably multifactorial. Do you have the genetics for this? Were you exposed to it? Do you smoke? Do you drink too much? Did you play sports? For some reason, we really don't know what 
sports athletics have to do with it, but that may be part of the question too. So anyway, as I said, BMA is a neurotoxin. Is, why is it just specific for ALS, or is it involved in other diseases like Alzheimer's, frontotemporal dementia, whatever? So that's his research focus. It's really interesting because it shows you that in clinical medicine, you, we see patients a lot. And to think out of the box of why there are clusters or why people are getting this or the factors, it's, it, that's, I think, what really makes our work interesting. So the last thing I'm going to say is, is any therapy too late? And I said this before. And again, it may be that by the time that we start treatment, you've just lost so many of your motor neurons that you can't do anything. And that, so to be able to have a biomarker would be wonderful. So that's it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Good audience. Especially appreciate your engaging us all and um, and letting us question some of our assumptions about this tough disease. We have I think time for a couple of questions. Absolutely brilliant clinical discussion by as good as they get. Thanks. So what I'm wondering is any of us really a disease or a syndrome? Yeah, yeah. Finding a cause or a therapy if you're dealing with fifty or hundred different diseases. No, you're absolutely right. I mean, that's why the focus is on the genetics right now. And you're right. I mean, neurology is still in, to a great degree, in the descriptive phase. And, you know, I always think, I do a lot of peripheral nerve work. It's like Charcot-Marie-Tooth disease. It was great description. Charcot did it. But now we're able to really sort out the genetics, P0, PMP22, is it a defect in myelination or axon development? But you're absolutely right that that's really going to be the key, that, that it's a spectrum of disease. And very naively, I thought it's like one disease. And it's only having seen patients for so long that I really appreciate what you just said. So, yeah. So does the superoxide, this mutase, help you in identifying an environmental age? Not really. But, you know, it was, it was the first one genetic defect that was discovered. And I think the problem with it is that it's so, first of all, it's really rare. Second of all, the therapy that we use now was modeled after and it's totally ineffective. And the, and the animal model is not really that great because it's more of a lower motor neuron form rather than upper, but yeah. And actually, Elijah, it's interesting you should say that, because he got SOD1 mice and was looking, not at BMAA, someone is, but what he was looking at were um, immunizations. Because the other thought is, why do military people get ALS? And one of the thoughts was because they get a ton of immunizations. So he's looking at tetanus and that, and um, didn't really have clear results. Yeah. Yeah. Could, could you comment on the, the name ALS as compared to MND? Yeah, so the Brits, the British people use MND, motor neuron disease, the American, and the conferences, the international conferences, they, they say motor neuron disease. And that is inclusive of Vernie Kaufman, which is, you know, this childhood lower motor neuron form, SMA, spinal muscular atrophy probably PLS, PMA, and ALS, whereas ALS is very specifically upper and lower motor neuron bulbar involvement. So, but, but now, I mean, apropos of the first question, I mean, it's kind of a very limiting definition because now a lot of my patients have FTD or, you know, other things. And amyotrophic lateral sclerosis is just describes the pathology. So the lateral columns, which are the upper motor neurons, and then the amyotrophy, which is the anterior horn cells. Yeah. Yes, Dr. Enlow. So um, in terms of triggers, um, and I remember one saying a patient who was fine, got propofol for anesthesia, and then crashed. And uh, is that a common or is that a pure coincidence? Well, two observations. As you know, we all date things to events. Like my, yeah, you know, I always tell this story, so I'm sorry if anybody's heard of it. My grandmother 
got hit in the chest by her screen door. And then she was diagnosed with breast cancer, I don't know, a month later. <laughs> so in her mind, it was the trauma of the door that caused it. So I think we always date stuff. But having said that, definitely there are people that feel... There was a whole study about looking at trauma in ALS, and there, there were results on both sides of it. Surgery, I don't know, I haven't, you know, at least clinically I haven't seen it that much. Okay, thanks. Yeah. I think with respect to the uh, other observations, um, what, Jeff, would you be able to stay? Yeah, yeah, sure. I know there were still some hands, so okay. please come on down. Thank you.